Hello and welcome to the fortnightly Danube Institute podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute. We're based here in Budapest and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal of not only challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but perhaps also tempering new orthodoxies with old ideas. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by two of our fellows, Dr. Callum Nicholson and Dr. David Dewsbury. And now I'll hand over to them. Welcome to today's episode of the Chainbridge Podcast. I'm Callum Nicholson, and my co-host is David Dewsbury. Today's guest is Professor Jeffrey Kaplan. Jeff is a historian of culture by training, and over an academic career spanning over 30 years, he's written over 20 books and 100 articles on themes as diverse as terrorism, religious violence, millenarianism, extreme religious movements, and Cold War studies, which is increasingly more of a hot study these days. Uh, he's also taught at the University of Chicago, uh, Barrow, Alaska, Changchung in China, in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Helsinki, and now here in Budapest. Jeff's currently the Distinguished Visiting Fellow here at the Danube Institute and is working on a book on terrorism and insurgency. And we're very pleased to have him here today to discuss his life and work. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thank you very much. So, Jeff, you sent us several articles to read, and uh, I've read uh, most most of them. And uh, reading your work, it seems that you're first and foremost interested in the phenomenon of marginal and or extreme social and political movements, from the extreme anti-abortion rescue movement to marginalized and persecuted groups like Christian minorities and apocalyptic and millenarian movements. And first of all, I'm just wondering, how did you get interested in that? Where does that interest come from? Well, it's a long story. There are really two roads or two paths towards that idea. Um, one is personal and the other is more academic. The personal is that I was in Iran at the time of the revolution from 77 to 79 and saw a marginal idea that suddenly became mainstream and then changed the world. So that fascinated me. Um, I went from there to Hebron, Al-Khalil. Palestine was the last of the stops. From there to Saudi Arabia in time for the Mecca Mosque takeover and in the part of Saudi Arabia I was living in, the uprising of the Shia and the suppression of that uprising. Then eventually to um, Hebron for the first intifada. So the idea of marginal ideas that don't remain marginal um, was very much in my mind when I went back to school to get my PhD and start a new career as an academic. Um, that's, the, that's the personal part. The other is that you can learn a tremendous amount about the world around you from those who feel the most outside of it because their antenna is the most sensitive. They're always looking, they're always analyzing. And some of those movements, when you identify them early, come out of the extreme margins and become mainstream, um, for better or for ill. A feminism was a very marginal idea indeed. The idea that women could vote was very marginal in the 19th century. It's become mainstream. Um, it came out of this cultic milieu or milieu of lost and forgotten ideas, um, suppressed ideas, and it became very much mainstream. So did National Socialism in its way. Um, the, what eventually created the Iranian Revolution was very marginal. 
the abortion movement that you mentioned that I did a lot of field work here in the US, their ideas were marginal indeed, but now they are being passed in le by, by legislatures. And so what began on the extremes as a first anti-establishment and later a violent movement at the, very, at the very fringes of it have become increasingly mainstream. The idea that abortion should not, should be illegal should not be allowed and should be and the sanctity of human life as they see it has become very much mainstream so ideas on the margins can become quite mainstream and you can learn a lot the, the study of the margins like that is like a canary in the coal mine they will tell you they will they will their lives are based on what might come what could come what they fervently believe or hope will come. That's interesting because, um, I mean, there's this little quote I, I often think of. It's kind of a, you know, I think it's a joke almost. It says, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Ah. And uh, <laughs> Which makes terrorism scholars blanch more than any other <laughs> phrase ever, ever invented. Well, I mean, the point where I was going with it was that when you look at uh, marginal movements, obviously some marginal movements are, are marginal because we're worried about them. And there's other movements that in the course of history have been seen to be very positive movements. You mentioned the feminist movement, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there's some that are more progressively minded, there are some that are absolutely reactionary or, sure. or even apocalyptic in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is there some pattern across them? And can you, in studying a negative social movement, an extreme sort of uh, cult, is there anything we can learn that's relevant to the study and understanding of more positive movements that we should be embracing? The way I approached it is a something called cultic milieu theory, um, which we've written quite a lot about. And it was, it's based on the early work of Colin Campbell, who was the British sociologist. And in the 1960s, he looked out of his window at Cambridge and saw all of these hippies and anti-war demonstrators marching in front of his window and closing the university, and he wanted to understand it. So he created a theory called cultic milieu theory which is a realm of hidden and suppressed ideas. It's a realm of outsiders who seek to understand the mainstream. Um, I took that with a colleague, Helene Louf, from Stockholm University, and expanded it quite a lot to movements that are beyond the mainstream. This tries to eliminate the positive negative. They're the good guys, they're the bad guys kind of thing because they exist in a parallel universe. They share information, information that is taken from the mainstream or quite hidden from the mainstream or ideas that have been long forgotten, whether they're religious, they're political, they're social. And as they examine these ideas, they make ever more new, ever newer mixes they mix and match. They take ideas and create movements that are based on a bricolage of old and new ideas. And some become mainstream. Most of them do not. And these groups are very marginal. They're very ephemeral. They break up. What's interesting about it is that the until quite recently, and the changes are remarkable, the cultic milieu has always been a part of recorded history wherever we have historical records. There's always a percentage of the population who look at the world around them and the givens, uh, the given truths of a particular culture, and they just say, no, I don't believe it. I won't do it. I won't go along with it.
And that's that simple act of negation is the very first step into the cultic milieu. And then it's a lifelong search for truth. Very X-Files kind of thing. Um, the truth is out there. We can find it. And they spend their lives as seekers. Well, it's interesting. You've written a book on uh, terrorism, apocalyptic movements, and revolution. And in that, uh, you actually have this phrase, a very striking phrase. You say, the book is not really about terrorism or indeed apocalyptic movements or indeed revolution. It's about, to quote you, the religious consecration of the simple act of negation. And that seems to be what you're saying. But you say something else after it that's interesting. You say, in the end, genocide is the logical outcome of each of these struggles. And uh, I'm wondering, is that, have I drawn the connect, the, are those two things connected? You um, are, but it's a, you, it, I'm limiting that to the subjects of that book. Um, these, this was about radical apocalyptic movements who had, gen frankly, genocidal dreams. And some of them accomplished that. We were looking at terrorism and we were looking at violent movements. We're not looking at the whole, I wasn't looking at the whole spectrum of oppositional ideas. But the kind of movements that I was referring to and that are written about in that book are frankly um, apocalyptic. And part of that apocalypse is that there has to be a cleansing of this world. There has to be a judgment. And in the end, who will be found faithful is a tiny, to use the biblical term, righteous remnant, us. And there simply won't be a place for them. They will simply disappear. And some of the movements I was writing about, it is their business to make them disappear. You also write that the... Um, uh you, in writing, you seem to write a lot in your work about violence and warfare and, again, revolution. And you also say that you've always tried to convey dry facts with the intense feeling of those who acted or who have been acted upon in violent conflict. And I'm wondering that in describing how you became interested in these topics, you've described circumstantially where you were, the Iranian Revolution, uh, among other things. But I'm wondering, is there something deeper about, beyond the theory and beyond the circumstance, um, is there something deeper about the human psyche and human behavior that you find compelling about these sorts of movements? The, the very impassioned nature of it, is that something that, that is itself central to your interest? And, and if that's true, why? It really is. Um, the idea of the true believer um, goes back to Eric Hoffer. And I think he was one of the first to write about being thrilled by this kind of belief system. Not that you believe it yourself, because very few people actually have the capacity for true belief. But of those that do, um, they, they're absolutely fascinating. And trying to see the world through their eyes, trying to present that world to a reader as they understand it, and in a way that neither condones nor condemns, but simply leaves a historical record. And ultimately, that historical record is what I seek to write. Well, additionally on that, the... Uh I mean, do you feel that, I mean, were you, were you yourself raised in a religious context? I mean, I'm wondering what your, what the wellspring of your interest, well, why this theme has captured your imagination as it has. I don't know. It's a good question. I, no. I suppose I ask because the extreme movements in some ways often repel people. They, they can attract or repel. It's interesting to encounter someone who is interested in them quite analytically rather than for or against. We, we live in very polarized times sure. and ideas uh, seem to grip people. We all seem to be, you know, convicts of our beliefs in the sense mm -hmm. that we're prisoners of them in many ways. And I, I find your approach interesting because you seem to be very much looking at things from a very dispassionate perspective. But it's an interesting sort of combination of being interested in very fervent, 
movements that are redolent with fervent feeling in a sense mm-hmm. where at the same time you have a very dispassionate approach and it's, it's, for me that's a very interesting tension in your work well not tension but it's an interesting combination it's it's hard to explain but it's a way of approaching the work um i am militantly apolitical so they that's a start so the idea of buying into one of these belief systems is almost impossible but at the same time you're attracted by those who truly believe and we're not just talking radical movements somebody who is a true christian somebody who lives the life truly as a jew as a buddhist whatever it happens to be you want to understand how they understand the world you want to understand what the world is like without contradictions without shades of gray and it it is a fascination it's fascinated me since i was a child but on the other hand i was my family was not religious at all um their irreligiosity to use a great word interested me enough or disinterested me enough that we had a an African American Baptist church um on the corner of where we lived when I was growing up and so I went there because I was absolutely thrilled by the emotionality the passion the music the dancing even if I was too young to understand the theology and wasn't truly attracted by the theological content anyway it was the emotion the fervency the belief that fascinated me and i've been that way all my life well additionally on that i mean you you write quite a lot about and one of the papers you you shared with us was it's called no substitute for field work um and you were really trying to make the case i think for uh the importance of doing your own field work not just mm-hmm. relying on government data but actually make an interesting point you say on on the study of persecuted christian communities and so on as an example uh but persecuted religious communities in general but it seems to be particularly christian communities that there is actually not much data and it's not well studied and other than in china i think you said because human rights watch for instance study mm-hmm. uh the persecution of religions in general in china of which the christian minorities are one but elsewhere the christian communities for instance aren't given that much attention uh which i didn't know and uh but you say that uh you know the problem with these N- ngos which i think is a, a quite common critique is that they are very interested in fundraising and being policy sure. relevant to the home country powers that be you know the us state department whatever it may be and they write from a particular ideological perspective yes indeed and the and uh, but but in doing your own field work i mean i have some background in anthropology and anthropology has this distinction between uh emic research and ethic research so mm-hmm. as part of the social group participating in in their activities an ethic in the sense of being an outside observer who's with the community but not of it and and you talk of both observing and participating in political action and the private lives of your subjects and i'm wondering when you're dealing with some of these extreme movements like the uh the abortion movements and so on mm-hmm. how do you strike that balance i remember you writing saying when they were having these abortion protests you drew a line at going into the clinics for instance mm-hmm. with them and so on but could you talk about the ethics around that and how you position yourself in relation to those types of movements because typically anthropologists and i suppose historians of culture as well they 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 do join the communities but what's interesting about what you're doing is that you are joining as you say extreme communities how, how do you how do you manage that as a researcher it's very difficult because you have first of all you have using the american example you have no first amendment protections as say a reporter would have and so you become held responsible for what happens around you 
So if you are at a demonstration that turns violent, you can get arrested just as easily. You have no protections to that. If you are given documents um, by a movement, um, a reporter can shield those documents. You cannot. And so it, on the one hand, you have legal strictures, which are not moral or ethical. They're simply a reality of what you do. The moral ethical issues are much deeper. Um, to use the abortion example, um, you, can, you can go to these demonstrations. You follow how they prepare a rescue, as they call it. In other words, going into the abortion clinic. Um, it's a, it's a very fascinating process, but you can't transgress the law and you shouldn't because there is a very strong line between, as you say, an anthropological approach. You want to create, you want to understand their world. You want to understand how they perceive it. You want to understand their language, which is really quite specific and very hard for secular people to understand. You want to get all that and be able to convey it to your readers. On the other hand, it's one thing to understand that, it's another to buy into it. And so you yourself have to create some boundaries. Like I went into the anti-abortion research at the request of David Rappaport because um, it was very hard for anybody to get access to these groups. And I managed to get access without, without a great problem. But on the other hand, I think I did it well simply because I was one of the very few in America who didn't have a strong opinion on abortion, positive or negative. I'd been out of the country when for virtually all of the time that became a big issue, a political issue. And it rather surprised me that it did when I got back. Um, so I was, a, I was, as you say, at a position of neutrality. And I could see both sides because I would go to these demonstrations it starts, if you want to hear the anthropological background of it, it's interesting. Um, they, this small group of rescuers will meet, as they call themselves, will meet in a church. Um, it's an independent church. It's usually a very small congregation. You get together about 4 o'clock in the morning. It's really early. And then there is the decision of who's going to play what role during that, during that time. There are no specialists here. And so they pray. And out of this kind of fervent prayer will be, you'll be the sidewalk counselor. You will try to go into the clinic. You will do this. You will do that. You will communicate with the media. You get to the abortion clinic, and it is, it it is well defended, both with um, police, private guards, and with volunteer um, clinic protectors or clinic guards who, who volunteer because, you know, for ideological reasons. And what goes back and forth becomes extremely emotional and extremely volatile. What I tried to do is not only interview or try to understand the worldview of the rescuers, but I talked to the clinic guards as well. Um, the women, I thought, were the women who were going for abortions were out of bounds as far as interviews. They're in an emotional state and they're suddenly thrust into a terrible situation. You know, they're being fought over on both sides kind of thing. But to understand all points of view, you have to interview all points of view. And so we got to know well the feminist community, um, talk to the clinic guards, you go to people's homes, 
you understand why they do what they do. And it creates a sphere of knowledge that is beyond anything you'd see in the media, which is always surface level and slanted. It's not just what people do, it's why do they do it. And by understanding why they do what they do, I think you have the basis for much better policy and certainly the basis for much better science. This idea of not understanding why people do what they do is, is a question uh, that's always in my mind, particularly when I speak to scholars and, and researchers, because I'm always uh, interested to know why a scholar has chosen that subject over another thing. And I've, I've already asked a few questions around this, but when you talk about, it sounds like you're, from what, the way you've described it, that the the quality you had, which made uh, you an effective researcher of these sorts of movements where everything is very, um, emotions run very high, um, is neutrality. And I'm wondering, is that neutrality a discipline for you or is it a disposition? Uh, have you always been someone who's been fairly neutral? Uh, for an example, what I'm talking, where I'm going with this is that, you know, I grew up as an English kid in Canada, in French Canada. And as a consequence, I always felt someone on the outside and I'd be observing it. And then I moved back to England as a Canadian. And then I went to Scotland as an English person and a Canadian. And so throughout my schooling, I remember I had a very much a disposition of always feeling like I was slightly on the outside and therefore I had a slightly neutral perspective on a lot of the, the, the little political divisions you'd see in whatever context you're in uh, at the micro sort of school level. But that stayed with me and I've always been more interested in understanding than judging as a consequence. And it sounds like what you're describing is something similar. But I wonder, is that something that is, is a, a discipline you've learned to be neutral on these things? Or is it um, a dispositional element where that's just how you've tended to approach things that you have an analytical interest in? It's an interesting question because I've always thought of it as dispositional. But as you, you know, as you describe your childhood, when I was growing up in elementary school through junior high, there were three white families in an all-black neighborhood and three white kids in the school. And so, yeah, to a degree, you do learn that you are a guest at somebody else's table, for sure. Um, you're re you really are an outsider to a degree. And the fact that they welcome you in is, uh, is a great feeling. And so replicating that feeling to be allowed into people's lives who are, as you say, marginal, uh, perhaps oppositional, perhaps um, against the you know, illegal, if you will, is in some ways an honor, but more than that, it's a responsibility. Uh, another question I have for you, actually, is that where you've been looking at these more extreme movements, uh, be they these millenarian movements, these apocalyptic movements, whatever it may be, um, and we've sort of touched on this already, but from your 30 years of studying these, and I think, in fact, your your academic study is derived, it seems to have been sourced originally in experience before you're an academic of travel and work uh, abroad and so on. And I'm wondering, uh, are there any sort of general truths or conclusions that you've been able to discern across the pattern of these things? And, and anything it really tells us about the human condition? Uh, I mean, in a sense, what can people in general learn about themselves by the study of ourselves that are uh, in extremists, I suppose, or at the extremes, if anything? Well. It's that's a very deep question. Yeah, a very <laughs> hard one. Um, I would give you an obvious answer and say, in good academic, uh, in good academic ease, I'll get back to you on that <laughs> after some research. But essentially, one thing you do learn, which is quite obvious, is what people are capable of if they believe in something strongly enough. 
the movements that were in the book that you read and in the one before that, actually, which was on the African movements like the Lord's Resistance Army, Boko Haram, etc. What a human being is capable of with sufficient belief is both remarkable and appalling. I mean, you have people who truly will sacrifice of themselves for the common good. They will give their lives for others. And you have others who think nothing of taking lives on the grand scale. The extremes that human beings are capable of going to achieve their dreams. The I had a kind of, um, it's almost mathematical in a sense. The greater the dream, the greater the price. For those who dream of a perfect world, then any action to bring about that perfection is justified. It's interesting talking about these these uh, the, the place of the extremes in broader society because something I noticed you're writing about uh, at one point you you mentioned how there was the uh, the fundamentalist phenomenon in the United States in religious strains in the United States you said emerged in 1979 first entered American culture though it has roots going back to the 1920s and the Tennessee Scopes trial. And I didn't know anything about this. It's a complete revelation to me. But I've always had the feeling as a Brit that there's always a strain of the extremes in the American psyche. There's always these, these marginal groups. Indeed, you know, of course, a, a large component of, of Europeans who went to the Americas were Puritans and that there are extreme strains in that. So I've always felt that this sense of um, uh, occasional moral panics and so on and, and this, the, these extreme ideas was very much patterned in American culture. But the way you presented it is actually a far more recent phenomenon. And I'm wondering, am I misunderstanding that there? Or? To a degree, I think you are, um, because the book was looking at the contemporary world. But America has always been subject to subversion fears to popular panics. I mean, the, the very first one was just um, two years after the revolution. And the idea that the Masons and the Pope were, had, were conspiring to come over and set up shop in the United States, which would then become a Catholic enclave, etc. You see these kind of periodic fears, um, either from subversion or other kinds of panic, quite frequently in, Ameri in, in American history. And in fact, there are very few periods where it isn't there. Just in my lifetime, which seems to me long, but really is not that long, I suppose, there was the anti-communism anti of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, that gave way to fears of radical fundamentalism, which came after the moral majority in the 70 and 79, early 80s. That faded quickly enough, and then it became anti-terrorist fears. And the fears of terrorist subversion are not dissimilar at all to what you heard in the 1950s in America about communist subversion. There's always a them, there's always the other. And America, which has been an apocalyptic society from the very beginning, um, will, a, will commonly shift that into an apocalyptic narrative, an almost biblical narrative. That's very interesting you say America's been an apocalyptic society from the beginning. I mean, the word apocalypse, of course, has two meanings. There's cataclysm, but there's also revelation. And I think the original meaning is revelation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but what do you mean by an apocalyptic society? Well, it's, it was posited from the very beginning as being the New Jerusalem. And once colonists got there, one of the most fascinating dynamics 
is they were absolutely terrified of the natural environment around them. They were people from European cities and towns who suddenly were in a primeval, surrounded by primeval forest with people, the Native American tribes who were the other and thus easily demonized. The fears that went into that and exploded in the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, we are all sinners in the, in the hands of an angry God. It was a time where that apocalyptic... Jon I, Jonathan Edwards was a missionary to the Indians. I mean, that has that, that sort of rhetoric has absolutely nothing to do with the No, 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 it has nothing to do with the Indians at all. Or the no, 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 Native no, Americans I, or anything, no, no, no. anything I'm like not, that. I'm not saying it does. I'm saying that there's a pattern here that of, of apocalyptic belief. I'm not, I'm not linking one to the other to the other. Go ahead. I mean, well, no, but even sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is a, a quite, you know, um, hellacious, I think we can all it's agree, amazing, yeah. hellacious piece of work. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it seems to me that it, it has a kind of uh, almost static, dogmatic quality, drawing upon some of the starker and perhaps darker traditions uh, going back to, you know, antiquity and arguably to, to scripture. Um, and, you know, to Hebrew prophecy and early Christian, you know, prophetic culture and so on and so forth. But I'm just not sure it's an apocalyptic but text I, in any that's meaningful wonderful. sense. That's or a, part of an apocalyptic culture wait, wait, in any meaningful sense. That's a wonderful academic analysis, and it's brilliant. But the people in the pews weren't analyzing it in those terms. They were terrified that the devil was at the door. But he was actually driven out of his church. I he, know he was. He was. Of so, course. I mean, quite the contrary of to course. some sort of like hysterical re receptivity. But there, was it a, created, there was a studied it, it resistance. It created the Great Awakening. Can I, is there a different, is a distinction here though between sort of epistem and doxa, you know, like formal knowledge and, and, and public opinion in the sure. sense that the, that there is, there is the doctrinal analysis of what the text meant to the people who wrote it, the sort of a biblical originalist position in a sense. And then there's actually how people use it in, yeah. in performatively in the world. Is that of the course. distinction you're drawing, Jeff? Of course. And it's always been in America. You may, you may or may not agree, but it's, it's fascinating the divergence between the great schools of theology and what was done in the country churches, what was said in the public square. They're two different worlds. And this is, I suppose, equivalent. David, would you agree? No, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, and I, I think um, it, it's certainly an important point to always bear in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned before about the, the Great Awakening, and I, I'm wondering, um, when you write about the Operation Rescue Midwest, uh, mm -hmm. you say that... Um, uh, you note that, to quote you, among the people who join it, they all report an awakening, like a born-again experience, where an act, a word, or a graphic depiction of abortion would awaken them, Satori-like, to their mission. All report it was like awakening from a lifelong sleep, an old state, that they were shocked that the rest of the world, even their families, remained asleep. Now, I was interested reading this because, to some extent, and we were talking about this before, you know, there's the currently there are uh, social justice movements on the left, and some people call them woke movements. I think it's often seen as a pejorative, this idea of woke. People, uh, Andrew Sullivan's talked of the great awakening. Um, and obviously, I think with many of these movements today, you can look at the climate movement, the social justice movements, they may not claim or understand themselves to be Christian, but the pattern of ethics that it seems very much a product 
of a secular culture which is itself patterned after a Protestant culture, it seems to me. And uh, and I'm wondering that um, uh, do you find any similarity in how people in the structure of these movements? Not to I mean some people would say that they have similar patterns. The activists who have a fervent and I think very genuinely held belief that there you know an abortion is murder. Uh, that's in some ways patterned very similarly to the arguments of people who are on social justice issues. Mm. Now, to say that is not to draw a judgment either way, but do you think there's an interesting pattern across that uh, or, or not? And if there is, is there anything in that that's, that tells us something about these types of movements? Yeah, this is, the, this is the, I think, the great importance of fieldwork is you find patterns that go across radical movements, even those that are diametrically opposed to each other or those who are almost unaware of each other. As you talk to the activists, people who have given their whole lives to this belief system, there's always this moment. It was like it's a great awakening. It's a moment that is really analogous to the conversion experience in Protestant Christianity. You suddenly know, suddenly, that something has happened and you make a connection and it's awakened you. And that's they, they almost all use that word in whatever language that we've done the interviews in. They use that word. I woke up. I was awakened. I was asleep. I didn't realize the evil of this world. I didn't realize how bad that. And then put A, B, C, whoever it is that's bad, whether it's people who are pro-life or, excuse me, pro-choice or people who are not white, or people who are immigrants, or whoever they happen to be that you are against, or that you fear, or that you see as taking over in some way, conquering the society, or taking over from what was once the established norms and justice of your particular country, whatever that country happens to be. There's always that awakening moment. And then there's a radicalization process. There's a pattern here that simply goes across movements. I'm a bit curious. I mean, there's, there's an amazing, one of my favorite songs is uh, The Velvet Underground, Beginning to See the Light. I don't know yeah. if you know it. It's, oh, I'm a it, huge Velvet Underground it's, fan. It's a great tune. And, but of course, this idea of seeing the light, right? And realizing that everyone around you is cut off from reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is Plato. This is the, the allegory of the cave. And this, this yeah. Um, and of course, the call to conversion is something I just today I was giving a seminar on the cynics, right? And the cynics, this radical break with your past, mm -hmm. this uh, total disregard for the sort of norms and, and forms of society is something that, that classical philosophy and, and early Christianity share to some extent. I suppose getting back to the, the awakening, I'm curious whether um, some sort of structural deracination is something you see being a factor so in, in well in the united states right there's a there's a profound the the new world is called new for for a reason it was it was a uh, closed off from of course. The, the europeans for many centuries and so among other things the the awakening can be seen as a sort of frenetic attempt to to find a, a lost unity to find a lost um tradition and so on and so forth mm -hmm. but i'm just curious as you go from one context to another whether there w whether you have noticed certain factors whether in communities histories or in individuals lives which sort of not not explain or justify or make predictable but nevertheless correlate in an interesting way with uh with this 
seeing of the light. There is. It's a. It's an interesting process. It can be, on the one hand, very individual. What it is that makes me see the light, what awakens me, can be quite different, and really quite, for most people, mundane. Um, one of the examples I always give is for Rockwell, who is the founder of the American Nazi Party in 1960. He was living a normal life. He was a flyer in World War II and in the Korean War. He married a very nice girl, Thora, from um, Iceland, where he was stationed for a while. And he was living an absolutely normal life. And then one day he was in San Diego in an old bookshop, and he ran across a dog-eared copy in English of Mein Kampf. And he said where, where people had been walking by this thing for the last 20 years and nobody ever touched it. It was caked in dust and nobody ever bothered with it. He took it, picked it up, and he was instantly transported. He had an instant awakening. And that awakening, though secular in nature, was expressed in very much religious terms. He went home, he created an altar to his new god, Hitler, um, complete with a swastika flag and that sort of thing. And Thora came home and saw his new ideas in decoration and immediately went back to Iceland. <laughs> but for him, that was his moment. And virtually everybody I've talked to in all of these movements, radical right, pro-life, far left, um, the animal rights movement, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They all have this moment of beginning and they're each different. And what they don't understand is how I could see this and be awakened. Now I know the truth, very much like Zen Satori. But how is it that everybody else doesn't see it? Because I take this artifact, um, whether it's Mein Kampf or in the anti-abortion movement, for example, um, some of the earliest of the true believers, Joan Andrews, etc., who were instantly converted when they saw either a picture, a very graphic picture of an abortion or a fetus in a in saline kind of thing. And they saw this and it instantly converted them. And so they take these to the streets and find that people are revolted by it. And they can't understand what's the matter with them. Why don't they see it the way I did? This should have awakened them. And so the next step is almost, a, is almost obvious. If they don't, it's because they don't want to, because they are bad, they're wrong, they're evil. Well, I think there's also, I mean, just I, I haven't commented on this. I mean, abortion is one of the most complicated questions in contemporary society, and, and the United States is one of those. But I do think, I don't know when you were embedded in these communities, but there was systematic obfuscation and denial of certain facts in certainly the 1970s and 80s in, in the United States. And um, the fetus was referred to in a number of ways, which contemporary science has entirely rendered impossible, right? So I do think the, the graphic depiction of you know, a fetus at 20 weeks of gestation or something like this is um, an understandable symbol 
to with which to confront a society which is saying certain things about fetuses at 20 weeks of gestation um un, un, unsupportable things right yeah but you're making you're making a statement about the topic itself about abortion itself and what i'm talking about is more social movements yeah i had a question around that actually with the, the idea of it being social movements that the um, there are different ways of understanding social movements. You can have uh, uh, social ones, philosophical ones, uh, psychological ones. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that uh, often in life, like we, we all have interests. Most of us at some point in our life become obsessed by things. I've tended to notice that when I become particularly obsessed with a particular topic, it's usually when otherwise I'm quite stressed with various things in my life. And I become quite obsessive about that. I get lost in the detail. Mm -hmm. I think the mastery of the detail makes me feel a sense of security. It means I can tune out the rest of the world. And that tends to be the case, certainly for me. And I've noticed this with people in general, that often one of the symptoms of uh, distress is a fixation on something that you think will be either the cure or distraction from the disease, in a sense. Sure. And I, and I wonder to what extent that basic sort of COD psychological insight on, uh, just really based on my own experience, can be mapped on to people in general. Because if you look at someone who turns to a uh, uh, any given movement, the ones you've looked at, these the abortion movement for one, but many other ones, is that I do wonder often how often it's the, or even the, the example you gave of the, the man who started the American Fascist Party. He is it a case that he read the book and was so inspired by the, you know, the awful prose, or was it that he was someone looking for meaning at that point and that was the thing that filled the gap? Because you know, it does seem to me a lot of people who turn to religious uh, religion of some sort of faith, whatever it may be, in midlife at some point, they tend to be people who are going through some sort of crisis. They turn to it as a as a, a, a blanket of security. And um, and I wonder to what extent that sort of psychological understanding is relevant to these movements. And the implication being, I wonder if we're seeing across the culture right now quite a few sort of quasi-millenarian movements. I would say the climate movement is structured like a millenarian movement. Mm -hmm. The social justice one is structured like it. It's not to pass judgment on the virtue of these movements, but they are structured like them to me. QAnon seems like a, you've said, I said it's a millenarian. You corrected me and said it's an apocalyptic movement. But I'm wondering... Does the, the proliferation of these movements across the political spectrum, does that suggest deeper anxieties and pathologies in the culture, emotional dis-ease in a sense that's leading to people seeking something to hang on to as the middle class etiolates and they, people lose their security, jobs going overseas, you know, you get a university degree now, there's no real job security in that, you've got huge debt. Are there these sweeping economic forces, but also the the, the loss of meaning as as you know, so many of our jobs lose any particularity, we're all becoming mm -hmm. sort of cogs in the machine, as Paul Kingsnorth would discuss the machine. You know, um, do you think that these these millenarian movements are connected to those to these broader patterns? And in this sense, do you think they're kind of a form of collective? Do you think they have maybe a collective psychological explanation? They really do. That's a, in fact, you gave a very good explanation. There are two levels here. Um, the first is that there are always a group of true seekers. And people like Rockwell, people like the those I described in the radical side of the anti-abortion movement, in virtually any radical movement you find, they were seekers to begin with, and they'll find they will seek absolute answers, and then they'll find it, and then um, quite often they'll become disappointed in it and seek some more. But they're always seeking. When those movements become mass movements as you're seeing with things like QAnon, with the conspiracy theories now, and what's happening in America especially. Um, the element that's important is a time of perceived crisis. And crisis moments are fertile ground 
for to force people to seek answers because either they're afraid they are faced with a world they don't understand or they're simply forced to make a choice because of what's happening around them so america now um with the the kind of strange conspiracy theories that are becoming increasingly mainstream the election was stolen etc 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 um they, there are several crises that are happening at the same time um disease pandemic the incredible changes in the economy that the pandemic has sped up um changes in social structures in church structures and together they create a sense of crisis and sometimes that crisis is simply perceived sometimes it's quite real um the weimar republic was a crisis they out of which emerged german national socialism for example so you you find the two you on the one hand you have the community of true seekers who are always seeking and then as it goes increasingly into the mainstream the idea of a crisis mentality a crisis mode a need to seek answers becomes important there's a interesting you mentioned the weimar republic because uh again my background I have some background in, in anthropology and i remember being very interested in in the discussion of millenarian movements but also uh, liminal stages in society between one era of culture and the next and you know in life we have uh, uh rites of passage so we have weddings and funerals bar mitzvahs whatever it may be and often in those ceremonies the usual norms of your life are inverted i mean you could i see university as a liminal stage you know before university you if you're in england you wear a school uniform you have your hair cut and then you go to university and you dress how you want you get up when you want whatever hair you want and then you leave university into the working world and you have to cut your hair and get a suit you know and it's a it's a liminal stage really between one era and the next but in complex societies i think victor turner's argued that there's a um uh there are these liminal stages in complex societies but the big difference is they do not have um uh, ceremony masters to guide people through the liminal period and so um all the norms are inverted but there's no one who's in a position of authority because precisely all the usual authorities have been delegitimated mm -hmm. and i wonder do you, do you see the uh with that idea i, I think by my germany was a good example it was between in a sense one reich and the next it was uh it was a very ambiguous stage in german history and the danger in those situations is on the one hand they can potentially be very creative and and, and productive periods of in a culture mm -hmm. but they can also if bad actors gain authority through their charisma then they can actually distort that liminal moment and turn it into sort of a uh, a a forced sort of rivalry you know alienating people against each other and which is what obviously what hitler did mm -hmm. and i'm wondering with the current cultural uh, uh sort of period we're in which feels very disrupted i mean i've i've thought about this that it seems like a liminal period to me and i'm wondering how you see that in light of your study of millenarian movements and and do you see there being a threat for false you know ceremony masters to purport to have uh some sort of insight and authority to guide people through i mean i i mean do you see that the likes of a hitler rising again or is our new sort of uh, false ceremony master just the algorithm is it something more i think it's more the algorithm because hitler was a soter in a sense and his appeal was soteriological here is the savior soteriological could you explain that um simply that the study of savior of be of saviorhood right. of being a savior to a society david could probably explain it much better than i can for sure um but the idea is we're looking for the man on the horse 
Now, as society fragments, I don't think that there is that opportunity anymore. I don't think there's that wish anymore. You see a situation which is almost unprecedented in a lot of ways, where everybody can create their own truth. Um, we don't believe in the mainstream news because it's fake news. Um, whatever we don't, we don't believe in is fake, and so we go to alternative news sources, and they tell us what we want to hear. That's truth. When there is no objective truth, there are no lies. Everyone has their own. Well, it does seem to me now that whereas we used to say knowledge is power, now it seems like obfuscation is power, that everyone can just obfuscate their way through. And it's interesting you talk about that everyone's got their own truth. I mean, it does also seem to me that we live in an age now where we no longer have authorities. Now we just have authors. Mm -hmm. Everyone's an author of their own truth. You know, there exactly. is no, And I wonder what I often, we often hear about people speaking their truth and having their truth. And I wonder what truth means if it can be, if reductio ad absurdum, we can all have ours and it changes depending on sure. our mood in a sense sure. what's the what's the point of the word if it if it can mean anything exactly if there are if there is no accepted truth there are there are no lies but I, I do feel the need to interject that i mean the idea that society is fundamentally not based on truth is a very very ancient one right i mean you mentioned doxa and episteme these are the ancient greek terms introduced by the philosophers to say almost all of what informs you know social life and political structure is is some sort of half truth or illusion, right? Rumor and so on and so forth. So I mean, th these are not these are not. I, I would be the first to say that there are kind of technological framing conditions which exacerbate and intensify and make it quite terrifying the the state we're in. But the the question as such is not is is not a new one. You know the you know the classical Western heritage far more than I do. So let me ask you this question. Um, yes, it's true that philosophically the rejection of truth is ancient. But on the other hand, as you go deeper, the society remained cohesive because there were a set of accepted truths or accepted beliefs that allowed that society to, func to continue to function. Do you see that, that what I'm talking about with Callum today is completely different. We're not saying that there are, you know, there are no truths, there are not everything, there are no lies, there are no truths, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're, I think what we're talking about is a decrease or even a destruction of those accepted truths, of those accepted beliefs that allow a society to function with some form of commonality. I felt for a while that, uh, in general, not just in this conversation, but I felt for a couple of years now that the discussion of truth, I think, is in some ways quite misleading because truth implies something that is, in a sense, objectively true, which I don't think the is the point. I think the point, the way I think about it is that we are all, by analogy, threads woven into a collective tapestry. Mm. And, and it's a, there's a picture in that tapestry. There's some sort of shared sense of the of common meaning. And it seems to me what, what's happening is the tapestry is defraying, that the, the threads are, are, are unraveling in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it's very hard now to find in a geographical space um, a, a, a shared tapestry of meaning. Now, increasingly, there is the long tail of meaning online, that you can go online and, and you may be the only person in your village who believes something, but you can find a million other people in a million other villages through the internet. So we're having almost like uh, aspatial or despatialized forms of meaning that exist across the ether, in a sense, through the internet, uh, virtually, and um, without uh, uh, any particular foundation in space, nor indeed much connection to 
history to time. It seems to be very much just uh, unanchored from time and space. There are these pure sort of virtual uh, networks. And I, I um, so I often think about the, I wonder if the word truth is, is perhaps a, a misnomer, really, because it, it's a, uh, is it really about what is true? Because, I mean, if, you, if you're a fan of Manchester United, and I'm a fan of Manchester United, well, Manchester United is not a truth, but it's certainly something that we may bond over, for instance. Mm. Uh, not that I like uh, Manchester United, but the it's a. But you see what I mean, like it's even so, those who like Manchester United aren't admitting it these days. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But, but you see what I mean. That there's, I think, sometimes the discussion of shared meaning and, and the narratives that bind us together is somewhat derailed by the, it's, it's somewhat confused with the discussion of what is true and what is not, which I think is an entirely separate discussion because there there are you know there are scientific facts um the meaning we attribute to the facts is subjective the facts may be objective but for instance the facts of the va- of uh, of uh, covid uh, may be facts you know they're objective facts but the meaning we attribute to them is subjective so whether we look at the facts and say oh we should lock down or not is more to do with our subjective culturally determined attitudes to risk than it is our factual objective knowledge of the of the of the uh, uh the disease itself and so i feel sometimes there's a confusion between factual knowledge which is obje- uh, hopefully objectively dispassionately arrived at um uh, by certain standards of science and actually the more subjective world of the meaning we attribute to the facts mm-hmm. um i was wondering what you thought would be on that no i would agree let, let me take it in a slightly different direction which is the way that cultural historians often have expressed it. Um, Heisinger in the 1920s wrote a really great book called The Waning of the Middle Ages. And he speaks in terms of cultures that are born, develop, they wax, and then they wane. And when, and when that society begins to break down, when cultural cohesiveness is lost, and he uses the medieval period as an excellent example of this, then something has to come along to replace it because otherwise you have anime and human society can't exist in in that way. Certainly not perpetually. I mean, again, liminally, maybe for a short period, but it always leads to a vacuum that is then filled by something. And And cultural historians suggest that to use this wonderful Jewish phrase that I'm constantly using, the birth pangs of the Messiah, that the chaos, that the liminality, that the collapse of social cohesion, of national inte- national integrities, as that, ha- as that proceeds, then invariably something else has to rise. Now, what will rise may be wonderful. It may be, as, the, as to use the Weimar example, again, terrible. But something has to replace it that will allow that kind of cultural cohesiveness that allows states to function as states, that allows cultures to have a group of shared beliefs and ideals that allow them to function as a society. Jeff, when we, um, uh, you know, we're going to come to the close of the podcast now and uh, just final thought, really. I mean, when people are looking at the you know, the, the the state of the world we're in now, we, we live in, as people say, interesting times. It was a Chinese curse. We <laughs> yeah. live in interesting times. Um, and it does seem that we are, that there are many sort of interesting movements, be they religious or otherwise. Often it seems, from what you're saying, quite structured in similar ways. What do you think people uh, should bear in mind in these very polarized times where it's very hard to 
I think it's very hard for many of us to adopt the level of, of dispassion of analyzing things in an apolitical manner as, as your approach is. Um, what would you say we should be bearing in mind in these sorts of times, these very fractious times, in light of your work and your experience on these issues? When I've been asked that, I've avoided the question in a neat way by quoting, by quoting in general Eric Hoffer, who said, all that I have is by way of analysis and none of belief. If you were to believe what I said, then I've said it all wrong. It's, a, it's, it's not a precise quote, but it's the, it's the general idea that it's really historians are very poor prognosticators. We're very good at telling about the past and we're very good at looking at processes and institutions. But in a point to go back to Heisinger, when there is a waning of a culture, when there's a breakdown of a culture, and you know something will follow it, what it'll be, we don't know, and would be better not to guess. I would leave that to your listeners. Jeffrey Kaplan, thank you very much for coming on the Chambridge podcast. I've been Cal Nicholson. My co-host is David Dusenbury, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you very much.